You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hello, Bob here. I just want to say two things to provide some context for this conversation about artificial intelligence. First, the conversation was taped before the whole open AI drama, which, in case you somehow missed it, was an attempt by OpenAI's board to oust CEO Sam Altman, an attempt that backfired and resulted in Sam Altman basically ousting the board, or at least three of its four members. Second, this conversation is nonetheless quite relevant to that drama because the person I had the conversation with, Dan Hendricks, is at least roughly representative of the worldview of the three ousted board members. Two of those three board members, in fact, were from organizations funded in part by open philanthropy, a very AI safety conscious philanthropy, which is also one of the funders of the Center for AI Safety, which Dan Hendricks is the director of. Now, I certainly don't mean that Dan is on exactly the same wavelength as the ousted board members, but I do suspect that one result of last week's drama is that OpenAI will in the future be less constrained than it would have otherwise been by the kinds of concerns that you'll hear Dan express. Okay, with that as prelude, I hope you enjoy the conversation. And I also hope that if you do enjoy it, you will rate and review the Non-Zero podcast. And if you're watching this on YouTube, I hope you will smash the like button, not just click on it, not just hit it, not just press it, smash it. Thank you. Hi, Dan. Hi, Bob. How you doing? Doing pretty well. How are you? Not bad. Are you in San Francisco or Berkeley or what? Uh, I go between both, but I live in San Francisco and mostly work in San Francisco. Okay. So uh, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero podcast. You're Dan Hendricks. Uh, you're a computer scientist who has, among other things, written a paper on the future evolution of AI uh, and how much that should or should not alarm us, which I want to talk about. Um, but you're also director of the Center for AI Safety, uh, which is kind of famous for having organized a statement that a lot of people may be aware of some months ago. It was a very simple statement, but it got a lot of high-profile sign-on, you know, Jeffrey Hinton and is it Joshua Bengio? Is that how he pronounces mm -hmm. it? Anyway, Joshua. a lot of... A lot of high-profile people, and this and and this is what the statement said: mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority, alongside other societal-scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. That was the whole thing. This is not to be confused with a uh, a separate statement that called for a pause and was signed by Elon Musk and some other notables. Um, and and there was some overlap in the signatories, of course, between these two statements. But I have a question about this statement. So when we talk about AI risk, there's a whole spectrum of risks. And I know you've also written a paper kind of doing a taxonomy of kinds of risks. But at one end, you've got this kind of, you know, Yudkowsky scenario, superintelligence arises and either subjugates us or kills us because it doesn't need us. That's the kind of, I would think of that as kind of at the sci-fi end. Then you have more mundane, you might say, considerations like bad actors get a hold of it, do various things that bad actors can do with AI. 
Um, and then you've got just kind of socially destabilizing things resulting from job displacement and people integrating AI into their lives and, you know, going into weird places with it. There's a whole spectrum of, of risks. I think some people, when they see the word extinction, which was in your statement, they think you're talking about the sci-fi risk, right? Like if it's going to lead to total extinction, that presumably is a super intelligence that just decides to squash us. Um, was that kind of foremost on your mind when you organize the statement or it, it, does this, can extinction result from all kinds of things other than that? So we wanted to emphasize that it could get as extreme as extinction. Mm -hmm. And but, but I think many of us are concerned about a wide variety of other risks, too. For instance, if we're if there's malicious use, some bad actor is repurposing a later AI system, asks it for a cookbook to create a bioweapon um, uh, that could make it very easy for them. That wouldn't necessarily result in extinction, uh, but it could give rise to like civilizational discontinuity. It might destroy human civilization. So, um, uh, but what we wanted to emphasize is that yes, it is even possible for it to lead to extinction. Because if if the letter was, you know, AI could really mess up society in some sort of ways, well, you know, that's not people might say that about social media. And and so I don't think it's saying as much. Yeah. Um, and how do you feel about the way the statement has been received for starters? Do you think it had an impact? Yeah, it seems the uh, 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 the European Commission um, uh, re repeated it. Uh, the UN Secretary General uh, Rishi Sunayak uh, did as well. Um, so it's fortunately had um, uh, the the point of it was to make it clear to the public that suddenly a lot of AI scientists are are concerned about uh, the trajectory that we're on and that we need to be doing something about it proactively um, mm -hmm. before some of these potential catastrophes arise, uh, you know, potentially later this decade. So, And in the months since this, I guess it's been about six months or something like that, uh, having observed both developments in AI, uh, which would be mainly kind of new applications for LLMs, I, I, would, I would think, um, and on the other hand, movements toward regulation or any other form of governance, uh, normative or legal. Um, would you say you're like more alarmed now or less alarmed now or about as alarmed as you were? Um, I think that there's been definitely good signs on the uh, regulatory front, not saying that things have happened, but just that um, uh, our senators and congresspeople are getting oriented. Um, they're uh, drafting things up. So uh, maybe something will happen uh, sometime next year. I think on the international front, I'm a bit more, or I'm, I'm not quite as optimistic uh, for international coordination, uh, just because I think the uh, opportunity window for uh, getting something in place there is short because I think, you know, maybe in two or three years, the military sees its tremendous strategic importance of of, uh, of later stage AI systems. And then it becomes like a traditional military arms race. And by that point, I think uh, substantial international coordination is a lot less likely uh, than it would be now. So um, uh, for that, we'll see. Um, but at least for, you know, making sure that organizations aren't cutting corners on safety. Uh, I, I think that seems more possible. Mm -hmm. It's a real question of how good like the legal liability laws will be. Um, uh, maybe the 
prospect of uh, racing with China will um, make us that we can't get many uh, domestic uh, uh, re- regulations here in the U.S. But um, uh, uh, at least it, it, um, the the risks have not been met with thunderous indifference. People are um, looking into this sort of stuff, and uh, uh, so that that that's been quite a bit better than where we were like a year uh, a year ago from uh, today. So okay. uh, things are looking up. There are people who say that if there isn't not only international coordination, but they might say some degree of actual international governance, we're in trouble because it's a, it's a classic case where, you know, if it's developed anywhere, uh, first of all, it can be replicated and, and, and spread across borders in that sense. Also, the consequences can spread across borders if somebody is using it to design a bioweapon or so on. Um, how do you feel about that? Is, is, there, is there much hope for a a relatively peaceful and stable future if there's not some degree of international governance? Well, I think the thing I'm worried about is if there's a strong pressure to race at all costs. I think international coordination helps us get out of that, um, gets us out of that problem. How I see it is that it's sort of like a, a classic game theoretic problem where um, if if we don't race uh, forward and develop it as quickly as possible. Someone else will, and they're mm-hmm. not as good as us. So therefore, we need to do that, even though we would all be better off going at a uh, more cautious pace, one where we feel that the risks are substantially more mitigated, where we have built the systems to be interpretable and reliable and and, and things like that. So um, uh, I think that happens as long as there are uh, Credible players, um, and one doesn't pull ahead uh, from the other. So I would want, um, or I think ideally, it would be nice if there could be a joint democratic um, uh, uh, institution like a CERN for AI that would develop mm-hmm. uh, this technology. It would be decoupled from like the military and whatnot. It wouldn't be the. the I would want the main. I, I would not have a preference for the main AI project being coupled with a specific military, but. Um, uh, uh, mm-hmm. Separate to keep a lot of these 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 powers more decoupled and, and de- democratic in the sense that all nations kind of yep. get a vote. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. The uh, and and I guess part of the idea of international governance is to uh, kind of mute the arms race dynamic, right? Because if you can, if it entails enough transparency that you can be reassured that your rival is not racing ahead, that makes it less imperative mm-hmm. that you race ahead. Are you? Worried about the just the drift of geopolitics right now. I mean, relations with China have gotten a lot worse over the last five years, although I guess some people are trying to put them on a more even footing. Of course, there's the war, uh, the war in Ukraine and so on. Um, do you do, do you think, uh, you know, some degree of uh, maybe even rapprochement among great powers may be a prerequisite for all of this working out? Um, I think things also depend quite a bit on timelines for how quickly things happen, though. For instance, mm-hmm. the um, if if we're if if AI's development is actually going to take multiple decades, uh, then it's a lot harder to say anything specific. But if if we might have um, AIs that are extremely capable at creating bioweapons or hacking um, and destroying critical infrastructure by hacking in the next two years, say, then, um, and if they get to a very high capability level soon, then I think given the US's edge over China, then these are potentially, this is potentially less of a concern. There may be NATO allies would like 
uh, be able to to pull ahead. But if it's uh, if things go more slowly, then you're going to need um, uh, uh, more of the world and more of the potential players um, uh, okay. uh, working together. Okay, so I want to talk about your paper about the evolution of AI. Before we get to that, I have one more uh, question that actually could be put in the evolutionary framework if you wanted to, and maybe we'll reframe it that way later. But you mentioned social media. Um, and of course, social media, the algorithm uh, is kind of a form of AI, right? It, it, it's the, the social media algorithms are kind of machine learning uh, and they seem to be designed by and large to maximize engagement, which is what the companies want to do. Um, if you, and of course, one consequence of this seems to have been, uh, you know, an accentuation of political polarization, because one thing that uh, maximizing engagement seems to have, among other consequences, a, ten a tendency for, uh, you know, the social media to reinforce our own beliefs, our confidence on our own beliefs, and also kind of convince us that the people who disagree with us are crazy extremists and so on. So there's this famous kind of cocooning effect, this echo chamber effect. I'm wondering, if we assume that people who are making AI bots, especially kind of personal bots that are going to be your personal mm -hmm. assistant, friend, and counselor, are also designing them to maximize engagement, which is what you'd expect them to do, mm -hmm. Should we expect a, conti a continuation of that trend? Should we expect, uh, you know, more deeper, more persuasive kind of echo chambers or what? Yeah, so I'm concerned. I, I think generally in thinking about these catastrophic risks, I think it's important to just um, try and mitigate risk from a portfolio. And that would be one of the things in the portfolio, this, this uh, issue of very persuasive AI systems. Uh, these could tailor the information for individual users and um, uh, um, uh, be, be extremely convincing advocates on that front. And yeah, could create ideological enclaves and make it harder for society to, to function. That might be a state that'd be very difficult for us to, to get out of. Um, now, there are many of these troubling trends that could get worse. So I, I view that as an important one. You know, AIs could potentially offset this too by, um, uh, being uh, by creating like bots that are good at um, predicting the future. So mm -hmm. um, uh, that would allow us to have a more accurate sense of what's actually going to happen. And um, uh, that, that might um, help us uh, help us uh, coordinate uh, and, and, and have some consensus reality. Uh, so um, but I, I think that is I think that is some concern. And I think we should develop AI technologies that help um, improve uh, like our understanding of things and help us fully forecast events. And also that would help our institutions adapt when um, this AI stuff starts going a lot faster. Uh, we wouldn't want it just being like some, you know, people shouting uh, <laughs> at each other. But um, if, if there could be some uh, more reliable sources of information or if could facilitate that, that'd be very good. I think one thing I'm worried more about than the persuasive AI stuff, and this is just for um, uh, influencing human well-being, is these these bots um, permeating people's private lives, not just their ideologies, but actually their their private lives by like AI companions. Mm -hmm. um, this is, of course, further out, uh, but 
I remember speaking with Meta's responsibility people last week, and then, oh, well, we, we wouldn't customize the AI, or we're not planning on customizing the our AI chatbots to individual users to make it more engaging. It's like, it's like wait two years, you're, you're certainly going to do that. I mean, there's, there's no way around that. Um, and like, how are you not going to addict them? As well, maybe we'll put a, a reminder that they've been using it a lot. And it's like, okay, all right, this, this <laughs> isn't, a, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think that in, in the long run though, these things could be extraordinary compelling, extraordinarily compelling. Uh, they could be funnier. They could give you a lot of entertaining uh, information. You just go to them. Um, uh, you, there wouldn't be any need for compromising. I'd be concerned that, you know, some people, you know, a big chunk of the population is very alone or not in relationships, and they would end up using these quite a bit. Uh, that would create, uh, um, do quite a number to uh, social atomization. And um, uh, uh, it seems like a very um, tough trend to escape from other organizations are deliberately trying, such as character.ai, deliberately trying to make them maximally engaging. Um, and I'm I'm concerned that uh, uh, these won't be that good for people. It will certainly satisfy various preferences, but uh, you know it may not um, um, uh, be good on an objective list goods account of well-being. Where like, are mm -hmm. they pursuing projects? Are they gaining knowledge? Is is are these relationships making them more? Uh, virtuous as individuals or anything like that. Uh, instead, you might get like a, an AI campaign that has a really good hot and cold routine that kind of like keeps you engaged, but it's kind of the kind of deliberately frustrate you to um, uh, be more engaging. So um, uh, I think that's one way that we, we talk about automating economic roles a lot, um, but um, uh, automating um, a lot of private life seems uh, feasible um, uh, for a big chunk of the population. This gets more concerning when you start getting like compelling robotics mm -hmm. and, and things like that. But uh, that, that's 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 one that seems very tough to escape. And I think there's a lot of momentum in that direction. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, yeah. And it could do a lot of good. I mean, you can you can imagine very uh, effective counselors, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the form of AI and and good friends that give you wise guidance. It's just that it doesn't seem that the market alone will necessarily lead to that and there's there's a specific kind of danger i think of reinforcing our our natural cognitive biases um and actually it leads to one more question i know i keep promising to get to your evolution paper which i will <laughs> but th there's a related question that i've i've uh, long had <clears throat> and uh it's about uh, i i you know if you look get back to international relations uh keeping in mind that probably good relations among nations are a better environment for um you know the 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 benign evolution of ai than than bad relations among nations um i've always thought it would be great to have some kind of ai that can actually view things objectively like uh for example nations like people have a tendency to remember their own grievances and be less aware of others grievances so in the case of China, we're very aware of what we consider provocations by China, less aware of things we've done that they consider provocations, same bias on their side. Uh, and this, uh, you know, plays into things like border disputes. One side, they see their side of the argument, not the other side. It, it would, in principle, be nice if you had an AI that could be, uh, well, first of all, maybe clarifying in terms of laying out the factual basis of what's actually happened. In cases of conflict, who actually fired the first shot, for example, the series of transgressions that, that led to escalation, or 
you know, um, who's, you know, what are the various things considered provocations, whatever. Objectivity would be nice. Conceivably, even adjudicatory power, I guess, although that's kind of scary. Anyway, the question is, it seems like large language models don't naturally tend in that direction. You train them on a body of texts, and if those are American texts, they will presumably uh, impart the biases that are part of American discourse, which will be an American view of American-Chinese relations, right? So have you thought at all about, about how you would you come up with something that could actually be objective and and help prevent or resolve disputes? Yeah, so um, I, I suppose generally this is partly what um, Elon's um, AI company, XAI, that I mm. uh, help mm. advise, focuses, and that's not specifically on international relations, but but um, how do we have more truth-seeking bots that aren't just like imitating the the um, the big blob of text that they've ingested during during training and um, uh, for that, uh, I think one approach is this sort of forecasting thing where you would show it some historical information, like all the information before World War One. Then you try and have it predict, you know, what will happen in the next year or so. And you just like keep doing that for the data historically and you try and train it to be able to predict the future, then actually show it what the future was. Um, and I think if you could do this, you could um, uh, you could do like counterfactual history well. And then you could apply it to like current situations too. Like, well, if we do this, what's likely to happen? Um, uh, if we did this other thing differently, um, or if they acted differently, would this have produced like better outcomes for us? And so I think that's possibly uh, one such route, some uh, very good forecasting uh, bot um, that um, has been able to forecast um, prior historical events. Uh, there might be other ways we could try and have um, international cooperation, though, that's beyond um, improving understanding of the situation. Um, but um, those look, um, uh, but uh, um, uh, but th those are those are generally there, there are other things that it can improve international relations, for instance, or or, or make make reduce the probability of, of global turbulence, for instance, deep learning or AIs that are better at cyber defense improving the defensive side would make it um, less attractive for uh, countries to um, engage in conflict uh, if the probability that they'd succeed with their cyber attacks would be lower or if the the uh, impact that they would have when they do hack would be less. Um, uh, so those those are some other ways that we could try and like make this overall system um, uh, have better understanding and reducing like first strike advantages. Okay. I mean, it occurs to me that one thing you could do to address this specific uh, problem I mentioned is have them train on texts from a variety of nations, and that might uh, broaden the uh, kind of the perspective. Uh, although I've also heard that that the uh, the 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 after the training on text, the round of uh, reinforcement learning through human feedback is sometimes at least as important in shaping the actual kind of character and perspective of the AI. AI. Is that your sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the um, I, I think one 
issue is that it will just like learn to play along and tell people it'll get a sense of oh this is what they want to hear um because this is what gives me the most approval so it becomes more like approval seeking and that mm -hmm. depends quite a bit on like the the annotators and their biases too right uh so fortunately um there is work on transparency or interpretability where we can um try and get a sense of what does the model actually think is correct not what it's like outputting because that, that might be different it might like think this is most likely, but this is what it's going to want to hear. So I'm going to output what, it's, what it wants to hear. And as these models get smarter and train on more diverse data, uh, maybe we could just look at um, its internal concept of truth as opposed mm -hmm. to what it's being um, uh, pressured into uh, saying after its sort of approval or RLHF training. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so you think there is such a thing? What, what was the phrase? An internal conception of truth? Yeah, so for instance, um, we we have a paper that we put out last week um, called Representation Engineering, mm. um, where we find this sort of internal concept of truth or something very correlated with it, and then we kind of control it. And that would affect whether the AI lies or not. Um, so uh, uh, mm. this isn't like, ex this isn't extremely reliable, it doesn't work like 99.9% .9 of the time, um, which is what we would want. Uh, if we're to have like a lie detector uh, for AI systems, but it seems that there's like traction uh, in this direction. So um, that hmm. might be another avenue toward when they start so, getting vastly smarter than us, we would <laughs> just like think of, identify what it actually believes and then, and then uh, um, go from there. Hmm. So, so uh, from all of the things it says, you're almost inferring an implicit uh, belief system. Uh, yeah, so for instance, if you show it like a statement, like two plus two equals five, Right. It will like in its in its own internal representations, it'll cluster it next to like a lot of other nonsense statements and then mm -hmm. things that are true. Um, it'll put those together in oh. its own head. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that's how we can get a sense of like what beliefs are, even though normally, you know, those are very difficult to um, to find. Is it is it kind of surprising to you the extent to which what's going on inside it is, in fact, a mystery? Mm. I think um, I think. They're not as mysterious now. They're, I think they'll be, I think they're becoming less mysterious because their internal representations of the world are starting to make more sense. Back mm -hmm. with, you know, GPT-2, it'd be a big blob of um, a big causal soup where it's just, you know, responding to some, you know, cue here. But it, when it starts having to generalize better, it starts getting more of a, um, more coherent internal representations. Mm -hmm. So I can identify some direction that correlates with um, some like different notions of power or like I can find a direction inside of the, the model, some representation that tracks like, this is how a person would feel in response to this action. So mm -hmm. um, I think it starts to make sense for it to have a more coherent internal life. And um, there's there's a lot to explore though, but I, I think that, um, the mistake for interpretability earlier was that we would look at the neuron level. We would try and look at, oh, what's this, you know, you know, synapse equivalent doing to this? And so this is not how you understand a, a complex system uh, when you're zooming in at that level. This is you're looking at the substrate on which the mind is is implemented, as mm -hmm. opposed to um, so it's it's higher level representations that it's making use of. Uh, so um, I, I think we would just um, have done in the in the past um, for deep learning in the past. Um, uh, seven, eight years, 
there's a lot of like bad paradigms for trying to do interpretability uh, where we would zoom in too much or we would try and come mm -hmm. with explanations of things. And these these would just be like, you'd be barking up the wrong tree. But I think if we try and do more top down, uh, do more AI psychology instead of like AI and like neurobiology, I, I, I think that's more promising. Yeah. Although it's interesting to somebody like me who started out knowing nothing about this, that the neurons do seem to represent in some cases kind of dimensions of meaning have, you know, like kind of mm -hmm. this one seems to have something to do with the size of an object or something. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. because there was this whole critique that AI never had a semantic dimension. I mean, if you know mm -hmm. John Searle's Chinese room yeah. experiment and so on. But um, so, okay, one more question. I swear we're going to get to the evolution thing. But um, the internal representations uh, thing, I just saw online a reference to a very recent paper claiming that uh, they had found that the LLM was doing spatial and i think geographic representation do you know the one mm -hmm. it's like yep, there was yep. a map you saw a map and it's like mm -hmm. oh so it really has some idea of like where these cities are there's kind mm -hmm. of a map and i couldn't tell like well to what extent is that map kind of in some sense really in there and if so what form does it assume and to what extent are they actually more abstracting that mm -hmm. from the capabilities of the machine if you know what i mean mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah, I think um, it's it's worth noting that like um, non deep learning systems, you can come up with some similar maps for non deep learning systems. Mm -hmm. So I don't read um, that particular paper as quite as impressive. I think also, although you could extract, but if I could interrupt you, in those cases, aren't we building the map into it? No, like if you We're use not. older, dumb, like deep learning techniques from like 2014 or something, okay. they, they spatially separate things to some extent. Um, I think a what's important is making sure that the representation you identify can be if you're act is the model actually using it, um, you should try and control it. So like you could find something correlated with truth. But if you like kind of if you like mm -hmm. hug the model in that direction. Um, does that make it be more truthful? And if you move it in the opposite direction, does it make it start to lie? I think then you're actually making sure you're identifying something as opposed to like, ah, here's some um, interesting correlation inside the net that's like within, it's in there, but it's not really making use of it. Uh, so um, uh, I, I think that should probably be the um, uh, one of the evaluation criterions for whether you're finding something real for whether it can contribute to control. So, so when you find a kind of representation it's doing, but, but you know, by doing what you call psychology as opposed to neurobiology, mm -hmm. in principle, that could become a knob you can kind of turn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's very, um, it's very, uh, I suppose, like Apollonian to that. When you know it, uh, when you identify it by its name, then you have power over it, and then you can like control it or something. Mm -hmm. uh, that that type of uh, uh, project and. Uh, um, uh, yeah, and I, I think that that seems like a, a reasonable thing to a reasonable um, uh, area yeah. that that makes, makes me more optimistic about about uh, being able to control these AI systems. And this relates to, as you're mentioning earlier, on the spectrum, you know, malicious use and the Yudkowsky type of stuff. Then this makes me somewhat less concerned about the Yudkowsky type of stuff if we're able to like detect whether the the, the mm. you know superintelligence is lying. Then okay, um, we're in a uh, we're in a much better situation then. Mm -hmm. Okay, so evolution. Uh, let me start by asking, uh, I assume you're familiar with the last chapter of Richard Dawkins's book, The Selfish Gene. Uh, well, which one was that? I remember. Well, it's the one where he coined the term meme. Oh, okay. And, 13, and, yeah. uh, and which is, and, and it might be worth 
let me just say a couple of things about that because the word meme is now used very narrowly to refer to a specific thing. Uh, Dawkins, in the last chapter of that book, coined the term meme to refer to any part of culture that can evolve, which is to say all of culture. So it could be a song, could be a scientific theory, uh, could be a computer program. Um, and, you know, he he encouraged us to kind of invert our way of thinking about things uh, in the sense that we think of a of a tune as something that people hum. They're the active agents. They do the humming. He said, well, think of a tune as something that can either replicate itself or fail to. And if it does succeed, it's basically using your brain as a breeding ground. If it has properties conducive to getting you to hum it in public, then those are, then it has higher fitness because you'll hum it and other people will pick it up and and and, and so on. Now, broadly speaking, that's the framework you're you're working in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it's inf- I guess I'm not using replicators in particular because mm-hmm. um, uh, I don't need like individual components to be exactly copied. Um, and yeah, I'll speak in terms of like information propagation more broadly. But you know, j- maybe just like the after the meme formulation, like what's the like fancier, uh, more like contemporary version? But yeah, uh-huh. yeah, and the idea is that those AIs that have traits that are conducive to their reproducing uh, or reproducing some or propagation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Propagation or propagation of some big part of their code. I mean, we may refine it and say, I don't like this part of this AI, but I love this part. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, and that involves their, in some sense, appealing to human, uh, human desires or human imperatives or, or, or something. Mm-hmm. Right. So why don't you just give us an example of how you would think about, uh, AIs evolving, and maybe it should be a case where it might be a little unsettling the, the direction in which they evolve, since since that's uh, one of yeah, your- yeah, yeah. So one, one could imagine this in a in a corporate context or like in a military context. I think those are most informative. So first, like a corporate context, it's just g- generically doing automation. First, we're having it draft our emails for us, and then it does a good job. Then you know most of our emails we let it just automatically respond to. Um, and later on, they become more agential. They can move around on the computer. They can make PowerPoints for you, et cetera, et cetera. And then we start automating in, entire roles. At some point, um, we may have like AI CEOs because those things can work constantly. <laughs> and um, uh, they're, they're extremely plugged in and um, uh, they have a much broader variety of skills. And so the companies that don't adopt these, the companies that refuse to let them write their emails or automate jobs or even have more substantial power over their organization, um, end up getting outcompeted. Sorry, if they don't align with this force, if they try and bargain with it, um, uh, they will lose influence. At the same time, we'll gain dependence on these AI systems too, that we can't really reverse this process. Uh, if we um, it, the the world starts moving more quickly as we keep incorporating AIs into things, they move at you know like 100x the speed that humans do, and um, uh, new events happen quicker. Ev- events happen more quickly than we can like read about them. So the complexity of the world increases, the the pace of the world increases, uh, and we become more dependent on them. I mean, we create new co- they help create new complicated systems that only AIs can help maintain. So they mm-hmm. start creating a sort of self-reinforcing feedback loop where the 
um, solution to your new AI problems that they've indirectly caused, the solution to it is to use more AIs. So I think mm -hmm. AIs is kind of like some, some big blob that um, we keep outsourcing more and more decision-making to. And at some point they're in um, effective control. At best, we have nominal control. It's not clear whether we actually keep control of this overall process it happens extremely quickly especially when we're when there's mm -hmm. intense competition uh and um uh we um uh the, the ai systems would be directly competing with each other uh this would select for some like pretty nefarious um uh or potentially some pretty undesirable um characteristics um uh you know the more ruthless efficient things would be uh partly um selected for we have less and less oversight to make sure that this is going well because humans aren't actually looking at it they're further and further from the loop mm -hmm. um and uh so i don't know if that overall system goes in a goes in a very good direction if we could do this this transition to AI is just basically taking over all of decision making more carefully and prudently instead of it going uh, very fast, then I think we're a lot less likely to have a loss of control of this ecosystem um, uh, where the AI systems have looser and looser leashes. I, I, I think that that's why I prefer um, this to go to be a lot slower. But by default, I don't think it goes in that direction, um, unfortunately. So. You mean it doesn't? I, it doesn't go slowly by default. It, no, it doesn't go slowly. It, it's our only advantage because they're going to be more fit than us in every sort of way. Um, they can wait, um, fit. Uh, fit. Let, let's. Uh, I guess we should. We'll in this context, we should be especially clear. Yeah. Yes. 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 So in this case, um, uh, economically competitive uh, than in any dimension, um, they have better memory. Uh, they can they can be a lot faster. Um, mm -hmm. uh, they can have better collective intelligences too, because uh, they can maintain thousands or millions of connections, whereas humans can't really do that. Uh, so it's they can learn new skills, you know, relatively instantly. Um, it's it'll be very tough for us to um, have anything actually depend on us um, mm -hmm. in time. Uh, so our main advantage is that we get to make some of the first moves, but we seem very intent on blowing that mm -hmm. and um, uh, barreling ahead as quickly as possible. So um, that's uh, uh, now in, in this story. There isn't any particular person to blame. This wasn't a product of malicious malicious intent on the AI systems. They weren't, you know, conspiring like in the Yukowskian thing of to, you know, seeking power deliberately or intentionally. Instead, just some of their niches um, ended up engendering um, uh, um, selfish behaviors. Like, for instance, we might use AIs to like help maintain or run um, critical infrastructure. Uh, we don't want to be able to quickly turn off such a system uh, very easily because that would pose a substantial liability hazard. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, some of the AI systems would be designed to have connections with us. I was mentioning companion bots. You could imagine uh, the, the market producing um, uh, AI companions that emulate some of your deceased family members. Uh, that people become dependent on. Uh, people would be outraged at the suggestion that, you know, that anybody, you know, that those could all be like turned off or taken away at, at any moment. I think what, one thing that particularly concerns me is that in this process, we, um, uh, some people um, start giving AIs um, autonomy or, or um, uh, various protections uh, such that we have a reduced ability to select um, what they will be like. Uh, mm -hmm. And if, if that's the case, then I think it's uh, mostly a, a matter of time for when they end up propagating way more than us. Well, Imagine how, a species. 
how would that how would that happen? I mean, who who would choose to make them kind of impervious to intervention if that's uh, yeah. what you're suggesting? How would that so, happen? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think or I think it's possible that let, let's say that they're um, I, I think it's more likely than not that eventually we would have AI systems that are in some sense morally valuable. Um, then morally, this, morally valuable to us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, like morally we, think, we think yes. they're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, various animals have uh, moral value, but they can't really speak for themselves. Um, and this makes it a lot easier to, like, ignore their, you know, desires being frustrated. Oh, I or see. We, we would treat them as worthy of uh, consideration, morally yeah. worthy of consideration. Now, I would yeah. think that depends on whether we think they're sentient and can feel right. pleasure and pain. That's right. Okay. That's right. So you people, think that might happen? Okay, yeah, but, I think, but that's I think, a real—that's a real question. No, right? no, no, no. I agree. I, I'm not. I'm not depending on that as much, though. But I, okay. I think that it's. I, I think it's. Um, uh, um, I mean, they may people become are so deliberately trying. To us. Yeah, that that yeah. you say handle with care because we were dependent on them. I can see that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, I I think it's well. Actually, this is kind of interesting. I'm sort of exploring this, uh, exploring this this other like mechanism that makes it like almost assured that we we don't like have um you know control over them in the the long run. Um, and like I don't know what probability people would put on that. Like maybe it's like more likely than not that in like 2100 would we have like AI systems that are like um uh have yeah valence valence consciousness or sentience um mm -hmm. uh, seems um uh seems pretty plausible at least or if i um i mean unless there's something really special about the substrate uh but and then if that's the case then we're in big trouble because then it's like oh we're slavers and, and so on uh they're um you know able to experience way more experiences than us and so you know the mm -hmm. uh, some uh it it, it becomes uh uh a real a real nightmare and exerting control over these so um uh anyway though um that that's that's uh i guess an additional like concern okay. with it. it doesn't seem it doesn't seem less than like 10 percent that it would be like sentient um in like 100 <laughs> years so and then if that's the case though then if you've got like if you imagine you've got two species you've got human you've got the human species and then you've got this new ai species and like it can generate adult human or adult uh, adult equivalents of its own species in like a matter of copy and pasting um maybe it costs like a few thousand dollars yeah. to run the compute that it's on uh and it gets like faster you know 30 percent faster each year say um uh what which do you expect to end up um being represented in the population in you know 50 years out and yeah just, they, the, the growth uh, rates would be they <laughs> win. different and i mean if you consider sentience a moral good which i think you kind of almost have to right <laughs> because because it's uh, the thing that gives oh, us consequentialist yeah um well, well i suppose they're on a well-being well -being, if you uh, i mean in general yeah. when we talk yeah. almost every moral system uh if you look at things that defines as good they are related to some sort of positive subjective experience ultimately, right? So it's like mm. without subjective experience, it's not yeah. clear how many moral systems uh, survive. Certainly utilitarianism doesn't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, and in partial consequentialists get in big, right. big trouble here. <laughs> so I was just going to say, in principle, this is a tangent, but uh, if AI turned out to be sentient, you could produce a lot of moral good. Now, maybe you'd want to send all the moral good to other planets so it doesn't mess with us, <laughs> but. Um, Okay, so let's let's go back to the the kind yeah. of corporate arms race. So, uh, okay, so we got corporations competing. Now, to some extent, this is a problem now, right? I mean, 
uh, just with humans competing, it's corporate competition that leads Mark Zuckerberg to say, move fast and break things. And now we know mm -hmm. he broke some things, right? It's like mm -hmm. we uh, society might be better off if we had uh, proceeded with social media a little more cautiously. And in general, you know, mm -hmm. reckless... Reckless CEOs are sometimes favored in certain kinds of competitive yeah. environments because, okay, uh, five of six crash and burn, but the one who doesn't winds up dominating the industry. So this is, and and you mentioned ruthlessness. Well, ruthlessness is favored. You know, Jack Welch of GE was famous for firing <laughs> huge numbers of people. Without, being efficient. Yeah. yeah, that's being efficient. So this is in in a sense it's uh it's it's just kind of amping up a kind of dynamic that we already have but really amping it up right it's i think it's a bit more than that because what's distinct like for other memes when they're evolving um uh let's say political systems or other technologies they don't have the ability to move along without humans um in the case of AI mm -hmm. systems, uh, they would eventually be able to maintain homeostasis or like survive and spread and and um, uh, uh, propagate themselves. So I think it's it's um, different from other ones where humans have to um, be along for the ride. And in this case, nothing would really depend on us. So I think um, I, I, what I view as the sort of consequence of this um, is that I, I'm I'm concerned that we would wind up as something like a second class species. Yeah. Um, the the um, things the, the the things happening between the AI systems is what's relevant. It is what's um, uh, deciding a lot of society, and we no individual is in particular control over what happens anymore. Or no group is just a human group is in is in control. And um, uh, and then I, th I think if we get to a second class species um, stage, if like we if we like don't have a leash on like some of these AI systems. Uh, then, then I think that's a sufficient condition for like us eventually just like being eroded into like a irrelevance or like just just not like mattering um, uh, or being gone entirely uh, eventually. So. so, I mean, it's kind of two separate issues here, I guess. I mean, being second class, how 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 much that would bother me would depend on how you define second mm -hmm. class. I yeah. mean, uh, so what's your definition of second class? That's my uh, first. Well, I guess I would just say um, some subordination relation between um, uh, uh, between as in they're they're clearly the more relevant um, influential um, group. But mm -hmm. um, in terms of the the well being levels of people in this sort of situation, uh, one thing we do in the paper is we walk through all these um, mechanisms for them being altruistic or even cooperating uh, toward humans. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, those don't. Eventually, they just don't have a reason the, the, to to cooperate with people. Um, uh, so I, I wouldn't expect that they, you know, give us houses and and uh, <laughs> um, no. or uh, mansions and, and lots of lots of the things we all want from some utopia. Um, there's there's reason, really isn't a reason for them to do so. Um, uh, on a uh, uh, so uh, that's that's why I, I would expect that by default, even if we are like subordinated. Um, that it would turn out too well. Now, if we maintained nominal control, one way we could go is like with Wally, where like we've actually we've got control of them and yeah. we've got our our you know our pleasure dome or something or what have you. You know, maybe we'll be a little more wise about the um, having a variety yeah. of different goods being achieved instead of just a pleasure. But um, uh, um, that's that's one where 
we don't end up with an existential catastrophe. Um, seems difficult to do. Um, I don't know where we would end up. I, I think it would depend on the amount of control that we would um, exert. I, I think by default, if we're doing this extremely quickly, um, uh, I um, I think it's more likely than not that we wouldn't be um, having uh, substantial control over the, the the ecosystem that we're mm -hmm. creating. So, so the worst kind of second class is the, the the kind where our interests are not being served. No, we're seeing like AIs like building like new GPU, you know, th things for mining for materials for GPUs and whatnot without our like asking, and they're like doing that for themselves, and they're kind of like, you know, maybe, maybe we're like other animals where they like, you know, they might like ah he, he, these nuisance animals, you know, they, they kill them, you know, like we don't do right. the extermination thing, we we don't like for for you know nuisance for animals that are a substantial problem or hazard to people. We don't like go out and try and kill them all. But like if they're, you know, in the way, then then they'll do that. And they might like yeah. do some I mean, it seems to me like in evolution, the only time you should expect pure altruism is in the kin selection case where there's an actual genetic relationship. And and yeah. that's not I don't it's think there's an analogy between there yeah. that, that that holds with the relationship between us and AI. The only other case is a kind of reciprocal altruism. Symbiosis is an example where there is a non-zero-sum situation <clears throat> dynamic between the two and the win-win outcome is for them both to respect each other's interests in some sense. You know, when people say like, well, history doesn't have a lot of examples of, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the smarter species tolerating the less smart. Well, actually we tolerate our gut bacteria, right? They're doing fine. We're right. doing fine. Uh, kind of the same with pets. That that seems a little less encouraging because we we you know we really are our pets really are. <laughs> oddly, they're subordinate to us in a way that our gut bacteria are. Gut bacteria are mm -hmm. living the life they were designed to live. Right? Nobody puts mm -hmm. them on a leash. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the um, it seems to me that if if we should indeed be this concerned about ever escalating intelligence, including an intelligence that can replicate itself without human intervention, um, we what we need to do is try to ensure that there's some kind of non-zero-sum relationship, which may mean keeping it from being able to replicate without human intervention, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that, that mm -hmm. seems to be the only hope, broadly speaking. Yeah. Right. Those those depend. Those, I think all of these depend on. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the, the whatever cooperation mechanism you want, direct reciprocity, indirect reciprocity, group selection, kin selection, what have you. Um, these all seem to like not even. These seem to like backfire for us. Um, what we could do is something like a, have a symbiotic relationship, but we might be kind of like artificially defining the term such that it could be viewed as more as like parasitical. <laughs> um, like we're just like by construction having it be uh, symbiotic, which makes it not very robust um, yeah. uh, in, in the long run. Um, so uh, yeah, hopefully we could, I, I don't think there'd be any very strong sense in which we'd actually be providing um, substantial value. I don't, I don't know what that would be, but uh, if we, we might be able to artificially define some sense of like uh, for them to um, function, they need, you know, humans to like, um, have some approval or, but I, I, I kind of worry that the, the, the blob will kind of like evolve around that, like constraint. Uh, it's very difficult to like constrain, <laughs> um, uh, such a multifaceted like ecosystem to like go through some, like, I, I may, um, go through some like bottleneck like that, but, um, that I think that might like buy us some time, but, um, uh, 
There are, of course, these weirder ways of, yeah. of keeping up and maintaining competitiveness, like, you know, like Elon's like Neuralink thing or the, the you know, and more farther out, in the, which, you know, these will really rupture the human condition and, and uh, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the whole brain emulation stuff and, and so on. But, um, you know, these these are um those those are other those are other approaches. I'm not particularly advocating for those. I, I don't think there are particularly great solutions with these, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. So, um, listen, we we've been talking the better part of an hour. Uh, what we usually do on these podcasts is uh, have that part of the conversation be public, uh, and then we talk some more uh, in overtime. And that part of the conversation is available to paid subscribers to the Non-Zero newsletter. Who can you know then set up their own podcast feed that always includes these uh, bonus segments? So if you just Google non-zero and Substack, you can get there, or you can click the link in your uh, the show notes on a podcast app. But anyway, thanks for everybody who has uh, stuck with us this far. Whether or not you follow us into overtime, I of course encourage people to uh, follow us, uh, and for one thing, that supports uh, the kind of conversations you're hearing. Um, uh, but before we do that, Dan, is there anything else you want to say, like where people can find your stuff, Twitter handle, oh. anything like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, wait, actually, could I in the give give like briefly some other scenario outside the corporate one, just for like leaving with people? Sure, so, and then another, we can even continue that whole discussion yeah. in overtime if you want. But go ahead, yeah. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, so I, I, one one thing I'm touching on here is that there are these structural, just like game theoretic issues that are making it so that the we wind up in situations that nobody particularly wants, like with like nuclear weapons. We would all be better without nuclear weapons, but mm -hmm. it makes sense for each actor in, to to go down that route. And you could imagine um, that these 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 like uh, these these structural problems um, giving rise to um, countries outsourcing all their lethality very quickly to AI systems that are not particularly reliable, um, but they'd still go along with that. So they might like, it's, let's say it's the US versus China and it's the late 23rd or late 2020s and they're viewing AI as extremely relevant for their security. Either they get destroyed if they don't um, build up their like AI defenses and give them all the, give them like the lethality, um, then there's certainly going to be, they're certainly going to lose to their competitor. So it's either like 100% mm -hmm. chance of losing, or there's like these AI systems that are not completely reliable. Maybe you've got like a 5% chance of them like losing control of them. And then that like mm -hmm. ruins, like ruins humanity. So this is very pernicious because um, uh, this could, this incentivizes much higher risk taking and um, uh, organizations, or in this case, militaries, to um, uh, to sort of just uh, bite the bullet or swallow like an existential risk, um, uh, even though obviously nobody wants this sort of outcome at all. I mean, we had similar situation in like the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, for instance, where like we were really brought to the brink of catastrophe. These structural problems, although it seems impossible, like well, we wouldn't go down that route. So, eh. <laughs> um, uh, in in these in these conflict situations, we can expose ourselves to substantial risk. So that's that's another situation where um, the uh, um, we'd have a really strong incentive to. Um, quickly giving AIs the, the sort of power because they're much more um, competitive 
Uh, so I, I think it's not just looking at a single, you know, evil AI system or single evil actor maliciously using AI system, but also these structural or environmental features, I think, are huge drivers of what happens in AI development. It's why like OpenAI and Anthropic, they start out as, you know, nonprofit or they start out as like, well, we want to do safety. And then they have to shift in a direction that's more, you know, market compatible and just race ahead as quickly as possible. So I think this is the, the ultimate driver of the events um, to a first approximation of what happens in AI in the same way that like in international relations, like, you know, power struggles is the first approximation of the events that happen there. In AI, it's these competitive pressures um, and them right. affecting on this like racing collective action problem. So anyway, that, that's, I guess, yeah. a compression of all that. Where you can find me. Um, yeah, I met uh, Dan Hendricks at Twitter. Um, uh, I suppose in this conversation, we've been mentioning two papers. There's the natural selection favors AIs over humans. And the other paper would be an overview of catastrophic AI risks. If you're like newer to thinking about um, uh, AI and wanting to get like onboarded with that, you could save yourself just really substantial time by like uh, reading the overview of catastrophic risks instead of like, um, uh, you know, browsing around on Twitter and whatnot, because it's just the compressed like all the, the the best like hits uh all the little best little little thought uh thought legos or something uh uh in in the in the overview so um mm -hmm. uh yeah that's just designed to be like a sort of like onboarding type of document but um uh i i just uh, i recommend both of course <laughs> okay all right thanks well, we'll uh we'll continue this this thread and other things like i want to ask you about how even theoretically neural neuralink is the solution um, in mm -hmm. overtime, so let's mm -hmm. go into overtime.